The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is a record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship as usual, but we also need to have special prayer for our nation today. Um, In light of all that has happened this last week, of course, we all recognize the need for special prayer for our nation, but Ron tells me that he heard on the news coming in this morning that we have handed an ultimatum to Afghanistan, that they have uh, three days to hand over Osama bin Laden or we're going to uh, uh, decimate their nation their country, and that um, uh, we have a coalition that has apparently has been put together because it's not just the U.S., it is a coalition of nations that are presenting this threat, this, uh, this uh, promise, to um, the Afghanis through the Pakistani, um, uh, through their delegates, through their diplomatic corps. So this is definitely a time, uh, special need for prayer. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then pray. Father, this morning we come together thanking you for the fact that we have such fantastic freedoms in this nation. The fact that we sit here together, able to freely study your word, is a result of the fact that hundreds of thousands have made the ultimate sacrifice in order to purchase our freedom. Father, we are still in shock and grief over the things that have happened this last week, the assault on this nation, the assault on our freedoms and the assault on on the lives of so many. We remember them in prayer. We remember their families. And, and in the midst of this crisis, we remember this nation that this will be a tremendous opportunity for people to get their eyes off of self and onto ultimate realities and tremendous opportunity to share the gospel with people who need to hear the truth of the gospel. We pray for our national leaders, for military leaders, for our congressional leaders, for especially our president and cabinet, those who are uh, making these decisions right now. We pray for, as these events unfold, that you would give them the moral courage they need, the absolutes, the strength they need in order to carry out the mission before us, Father. It is not easy to restrain evil. And this is a task set before us at this time, and it may take many, many years and much sacrifice, and there may be much retaliation uh, in light of whatever takes place. And we need to recognize that you control history, and that even though these events may shock and surprise us, they do not shock and surprise you, and you have made provision from eternity past to be able to handle this and any other crisis or conflict that takes place. So we pray for wisdom and guidance for our nation's leaders that they would truly humble themselves before you and seek your wisdom and guidance. Father, we pray for us that we might continue to recognize and realize that this has a personal 
element to it in that any crisis should force us to reevaluate our own lives and priorities. We need to re- recognize that we must make doctrine first, because as goes the nation, so go, I mean, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And that we're to be the salt of the earth, and we can't do that if we are not making doctrine first, both in learning and application. Father, now as we study your word, help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The last hour in our study of Judges, I made a couple of comments, especially in relation to our response, to uh, our nation's response to these events of this last week. And I had one question. I, uh, like many of you, we had a typhoid Mary come through the congregation last week. You know who typhoid Mary was? She had, I forget what, she had typhoid. She could not come down with it herself, but she carried the germ and infected everybody around her. Well, apparently a number of you are facing the same upper respiratory infection that I'm facing. And um, my voice just comes and goes. And right now my brain is under the influence of uh, all the decongestion and everything else. And I'm not even sure what day it is. What was I saying? Anyway, if I happen to start down one track, sometimes if I get diverted, I don't make it back. Um, that's just, uh, just blame it on the drugs for one thing. But I had made the point that the two, reason, one, two, two things that are often being said today in light of our response to the uh, attack on this nation this last week that are invalid. One is vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. There's a difference between vengeance and justice. You often hear people talk about vengeance in terms of capital punishment. Capital punishment is, is the execution of justice. It is not vengeance. Now, vengeance is always wrong. Personal vengeance, vindictive, vindictiveness, revenge motivation are all sins. That flows from the sin nature, and anything that flows from the sin nature is related to arrogance, and that ultimately brings about uh, problems and, and uh comes back to hurt you whenever you operate on that. So vengeance is not justice. But I also said that that one thing that we're hearing today is we must seek justice in this. And I said that that uh, that's wrong. This justice is not a motivation to go to war. I mean, we did not go to war. And I used the illustration. I didn't finish it out and make the and clarify the application, but. We were unjustly attacked in World War II by the Japanese. You don't, there was no seek going to a higher court to seek justice. See, what happens is justice implies a law that covers both the person who is uh, attacked and the person who commits the crime. And see, if, when you're dealing with international terrorism... Uh, when you talk, start talking in terms of justice, you, you immediately imply the legitimacy of an international tribunal or an international court. That is one worldism that violates divine institution four and five. So there cannot be an issue of justice because there is no legitimate court. We have them. You have the World Court and, and the Hague, and you have, and that was the problem that we got into that was generated by the whole Nuremberg. Uh, war crimes tribunal after World War II, that really was not legitimate. Well, you have an internationalism which violates divine institution four and five is, um, is the legitimacy of internationalism and international courts. And that runs contrary to the scripture. So that's why I say it's not a matter of justice. It's not a matter of vengeance. It, it is a matter of national defense a matter of self-defense against uh, an action that is assaulting an individual or a nation that is assaulting uh, your own nation. So there is a distinction between those things. And we have to be careful. When you start talking justice, you are automatically buying into an entire frame, framework of thinking of internationalism and globalism that is contrary to the Scriptures. So that is, I hope, because I didn't make that fully clear the last hour. Somebody asked a question about why justice isn't a valid motivation. I hope that uh, answers the question. We continue our study in 1 John chapter 2, where we're studying cosmic system, and we're studying the fact that that the adolescent believers that John praises there uh, are praised because they have had victory over the evil one. In 1 John 2, 14 and 15, 
presupposes among his readers the knowledge of the angelic conflict. So we stopped to look at, take an extended look at the angelic conflict. We have looked at the origin of the angels, that God created an order of spirit beings. They are apparently uh, have bodies that are, phys- in terms of physical properties, the closest we could understand would be light. And they have the ability to transform their shape in some ways. And uh, they are not generated. I mean, angels don't make baby angels. They're, each one is created individually. That is one reason that there cannot be a salvation for the angels comparable to the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ is because the angels are not an organically related whole. Uh, The human race is organically related. Therefore, one can die for all. Jesus Christ, being true humanity, could die for all humanity. But angels are not uh, genetically related to one another, so there is no basis for their salvation in that sense. They were each individually created. Uh, we saw, we talked about their creation, that the angels were created first, and then the universe, according to Job 38, 4 through 7, all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation and the, when the foundation of the earth was, was established. And that would be uh, related to the original creation as described in Genesis 1, 1. We talk, talked about different kinds of angels, seraphim, cherubim, the one archangel Michael, and Gabriel, and then all of the other angels seem to fall under the classification of messenger angels. One of the highest angels, if not the highest of all of the angels, was called Halel ben Shahar, the bright and morning star, the son of the dawn, and that was translated as Lucifer in the King James Version and came to be known as his name from Isaiah chapter 14. But there really is no proper name in the original language other than Halal bin Shahar, the, the uh, morning star, son of the dawn. And that seems to be the closest we can get to a proper name for this particular creature. He's identified in Ezekiel 28, uh, 10, or excuse me, 28, 11, and following as the uh, uh, anointed cherub who covers. So I, he's identified as a cherub the highest of all of the angels, and he led a revolt against God. And this revolt took place between Genesis 1, verse 1, and Genesis 1, verse 2. And the consequences of Genesis, I mean, the description of Genesis 1, 2, that the earth was in darkness, covered by the deep. Consequences of Genesis 1, 2, that the earth was covered in darkness and the deep. It was Tohu Vabohu, indicates a judgment on the earth. And so by putting these concepts together, we can infer that there was a judgment on the universe as a result of the angelic revolt. Um, the extent of the revolt we saw from Revelation 12, verse 4, is that one-third of the angels fell with Satan. They were condemned, according to Matthew 26:41. They were condemned in the past, and the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. The past tense verb there indicates that they were sentenced in eternity past, but they're not there yet. And I want you to notice it says the devil and his angels, which tells us that those who fell with him were of the order of angelic beings. Uh, so the, they were condemned in Matthew 26:41. The certainty of that judgment is prophesied in Isaiah 24, 21 and 22, and we're told of its fulfillment in Revelation 20. Verses 1 through 4 and verse 10, that the fallen angels will be consigned to the lake of fire after the second coming and Satan at the end of the millennium. We raise the question then, why was this postponed? Why weren't they consigned or confined to the lake of fire in eternity past? And last time we looked at the fact that this involved a challenge to God. That Satan challenged the, specifically the integrity of God, his perfect righteousness, his justice, his truth, and his love. That that is the essence of divine integrity. And he challenges the righteousness of God in the sense of how can God uphold this standard of fairness and send his creatures to the lake of fire. In terms of justice, he's challenging the fact that it's not really fair 
uh, application of God's standard because he hasn't given Satan a chance. It's not really love because how can God send a, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? And Satan challenges the entire concept of truth because basically he is trying to rewrite his own definition of truth. And in this we see the basic um, issues in the spiritual life which have to do with our orientation to God's integrity and orientation to truth. So I have uh, restructured uh, what I taught last week in terms of the basic orientations that we should have in, in life. So the first one is orientation to God. And this is an orientation. It starts with authority orientation. We must recognize that God is sovereign, and as the Creator, He has the right to um, to dictate the terms of our existence as creatures. God is omniscient, so He knows all the knowable. Because He knows all the knowable, He knows that which is right, and He He in Himself determines what is right. There is not an external standard. So orientation to God is the starting point, and we have to. It begins with orientation to um, authority and then it goes from there to uh, grace orientation that everything is from God and it is not due to who and what we are as the creature then the second area of orientation is an orientation to doctrine which is orientation to truth we have to orient our thinking to absolute truth and to doctrine. That is the standard of God's revelation to man. So we are to orient our thinking to truth. Satan has a counterfeit truth and that counterfeit truth involves many different dimensions because Satan has many different uh, counterfeits out there. There's all kinds of counterfeit philosophies and religions in order to entrap Man into thinking that he can somehow make life work apart from God. And that is why the issue in the spiritual life begins with renovating our thinking. We, from the day we're born till the day we die, continuously pick up ideas that are generated from the world around us. That's what is called the cosmic system. And we pick up all kinds of ideas, some which are, seem good, some which aren't, some which are obviously sinful, some which seem to work, and some which don't. But we're constantly picking up ideas about life that we adopt into our own philosophies of life. And the principle in the Christian life is that we are not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind or the renovation of our thinking. So the essence of spiritual life has to do with complete overhaul of the way we think. Not only what we think, but how we think. We need to think as as God thinks. Think in terms of the creator-creature distinction. And think in terms of Bible doctrine. This is a lifetime process for the believer. And we never complete it uh, this side of eternity. But we are not to give up, and this is to, why this is to be the highest priority in the believer's life. So we have to orient to truth. The third area of orientation is orientation to role. This is one of the things that was violated by Satan, is that he thought that, uh, that he could uh, determine what his role was and what was best for him. This affects our roles in every dimension of life whether it is our work life under authority, whether it is our role in the church, or whether it is our role in marriage, in the family. Uh, Husbands are the leaders in the homes. Wives are to submit to the husbands as to the Lord. Lord, uh, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, so that marriage becomes fundamentally a spiritual issue more than anything else. And it relates to the angelic conflict because the first marriage collapsed due to arrogance and failed. And so in the Christian marriage, we get an opportunity to demonstrate that, uh, once again, that, that the believer who is advancing in doctrine validates the integrity of God through his, the testimony of Christian marriage. And so that 
by having proper role orientation. So whenever you have women running the family, men abdicating authority, children in rebellion to parents, uh, that destroys the testimony of the home in the angelic conflict. And then the fourth area of orientation, um, excuse me, I guess we just have, I, I had three elements. Like I said, I'm, my brain's real fuzzy this morning, and uh, th- I can't even read my own notes. We have three areas of orientation, orientation to God, orientation to doctrine, and orientation uh, to role. Now, Satan is involved in an assault on mankind as a result of God creating uh, this lower creature in the garden. Satan knew that, that this was going to be the issue, and so the, and he had failed to challenge the integrity of God. So now the issue is going to be the volition of the creature, so that mankind became the target of Satan's assault in human history. He won the first salvo by convincing and by deceiving the woman, and she ate from the fruit. And then she convinced Adam to eat of the fruit as well, and then the human race fell. So the issue in human history then becomes volition, and volition at two points. Volition, the first point is the gospel, whether or not a person is willing to respond to the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. The second area of volition, assault, is for the believer whether or not they're going to make doctrine the highest priority in their life. Those are the two most important decisions that we make in life. The first is our relationship to Jesus Christ, and the second is our relationship to Bible doctrine and advancing in the Christian life. Now, how does that's the basic principle of Satan's assault on mankind, and now we need to look at the... The, the, the dynamics of how Satan pulls off this assault on mankind. What are his means and his uh, strategies and tactics? First of all, we have to realize that Satan has uh, a vast organization of troops at his disposal called the fallen angels or the demons. We have seen in the past that these demons are divided into two groups. There are those who are operational in human history, those that are working in human history, which we call demons, and then there are those that are not operational. There are two groups that are not operational. One are the Genesis 6 demons, the ones involved in, in that assault on the human race, and the others are those who are, according to Romans, I mean Revelation chapter 9, uh, they are held in reserve in the abyss until there is a demonic assault on the human race during the tribulation. So, first point in terms of Satan's troop is that Satan, in terms of Satan's troops and Satan's army, is that Satan is the leader of a vast host of fallen angels. Satan is the leader of a vast host of fallen angels. He is called the leader, the ruler, or the prince of darkness. Let's look at one passage. Uh, to, in order to demonstrate this, I want to, as we go through several of these points, I want to look at about one passage each time in order to drive it home. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're told that, that um, Jesus cast out a demon from a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. These are some of the consequences of demon possession. We'll do a study of demon possession I'll probably get into it before we finish this morning. Matthew 12:22. There came, there was brought to him, to Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Now, demon possession means that here you have a body. I'm going to use a square here. This is your physical body. Your physical body is operated by your soul. Now, the unbeliever is is dichotomous and has a body and a soul. The soul is the real you, and the soul has operational control over the body. Now, in demon possession, demon possession does not mean that you are owned. Not possession in the idea of ownership, 
but possession in the, in the idea of control. That a demon takes up residence inside the physical body, but not in the soul. So that the demon operates from a position of control over the body and bodily functions. But it does not obliterate the individual's personal identity or soul. That person is still there. That person still has memories. That person still has intellect. It may not be uh, at the forefront or conscious. That person is still very much present, even though they no longer have control over their physical body. And that's the case here. And so this can produce certain different uh, uh, manifestations in an individual. In this case, this individual was blind and he could not speak. Dumb does not mean that he is... Um, has a low IQ. It is the old word for being um, unable to talk, unable to speak, a person who is mute. This, of course, is now a politically incorrect term, and um, which I find the whole idea of politically correctness offensive as being politically incorrect as far as I'm concerned. This demon-possessed man is unable to speak and unable to see, and Jesus heals him. Notice, we'll come back to it, that the recovery from demon possession here is used by a general term, hiaomai, meaning just, it's the same word for physical healing. And it is merely a general term that describes physical deliverance from physical suffering. And it's not a technical term for uh, demonic deliverance. It is merely a general description. The result of this is all the multitudes are amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, the reason they are saying that is because according to uh, various prophecies in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, there were prophecies that when the Messiah came, he would heal the lame and the blind and this would be a sign of his credentials as the Messiah. Well, the Pharisees were reacting to that, and their explanation was that, well, this man can't be the Messiah. He's, he has his power by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So by this time in Jewish theology, they had taken a term from the Old Testament and applied it to uh, Satan as a term of derogation. It was Baal from the same word referring to the god Baal in the Canaanite pantheon. Baal, and it, sometimes it's translated Zebub and other times Zebul. But this means Lord and Zebub of dung or flies, the flies that gathered around the dung. And it was a name, a derogatory name for Satan, that he's the Lord of Dung or Lord of the Flies. But the term is that Beelzebul is a term for Satan who is the ruler of the demons. So Satan is the leader or the prince or ruler of the demons. In Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince and the power of the air. So this is a title for him. Now, this indicates that he has a hierarchy. Let's hold your place here. We can look at Ephesians chapter 6. This is going to be something like sword drill this morning for everybody. Just so you can find your way around your Bible, you need to do that every now and then. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 establishes the basic foundation of spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We might translate that in the power of His strength. Because the word translated might at the end of verse 10 in the New American Standard is eskuo, which is the same word used uh, for the strength of the adolescent believer in our passage in 1 John 2.14. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So this tells us that it is uh, the strategies of the devil. 
Stratuo is translated schemes here. It's the, the strategies of the devil. He has a plan. He has a way of trying to achieve his goal, which is to demonstrate his ability to rule planet Earth. And then Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is an important little application here for us to remember, that ultimately our struggle is not against other human beings. We, every, what plays itself out on the stage of human history is often the consequence of what happens in another dimension um, uh, in terms of spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict. So often what we discover is that many of these um, people who are involved in generating wars, such as Hitler and the Nazis in World War II, as well as now with these leaders of fanatical Islam, that they are involved in some level with the occult. And the reason I say that is because many studies have come out about the occult roots of Nazism and that they were, they were into astrology, which was one of the paths to, to uh, demonism and many other, uh, many other occult practices. And the same thing is true as I'm going to show you in a little bit with regard to Islam. Islam, as all religions are, are originated and generated by Satan. But, but some more so than others, even though all religions have their root in Satan, because he is always developing a, a counterfeit system of truth and counterfeiting God's system. So what lies behind the struggle today, and the one that we are faced with as a nation, is not merely a physical problem. It's not just that there are some men who hate America, and that is ultimately why this is going on. But, I mean, that's why this is going on in many ways in a human dimension. There is a response of jealousy, anger. You listen to how uh, many of the impoverished nations in this country tell their children about the United States. Well, the reason you don't have all those things is because the Americans don't want you to have these things. And so from the time that they're little, they are taught that America is evil and that Americans don't want them to have all the wonderful things that Americans have. And so we are painted as the bad guy. And so their motivation is jealousy. Their motivation is envy. Their motivation is revenge on a perceived wrong. And then that is utilized by Satan. Satan has generated one of the greatest systems of anti-Semitism in the Islamic religion. A number of years ago, a friend of mine had, a, had a, um, some dealings with an oil corporation in Houston, Aramco, which is the uh, Arabian oil company in, out of Saudi Arabia. And in dealing with some of the individuals there, was given several books about Israel in order to try to convince, uh, of, convince them of the position the Arab position, and I read some of these books, and frankly, in my opinion, the Nazis were just anti-Semitic wannabes compared to what the Arabs have produced. The Arabs, you know, Hitler only had a few years to develop his anti-Semitism. The Arabs have had centuries to fine-tune their anti-Semitism, and anti-Semitism comes right out of Satan's arsenal, because Satan wants to destroy all Jews because God has not yet completed uh, fulfilling his promises to Israel. And if Satan can destroy Israel and wipe them off the face of the earth, then Satan wins. So ultimately, any form of anti-Semitism comes from Satan, and Satan is using these tools, these, especially the fanatic Muslims, but all Islam is ultimately anti-Semitic is being used. By, by that I mean we have to be careful. We don't want to go out and, and uh, brand every Muslim with uh, uh, a fanatic brush. That's not necessarily true. I mean, a lot of Muslims are probably about as knowledgeable about what they believe as a lot of Christians are. You know, the, the nod to God crowd. You know, they go through the rituals and that's their culture, but they're really not deeply, profoundly committed and understanding all of the nuances of their of their beliefs but that's at the core of it is is an anti-semitism and it is virulent it is some of the most 
remarkable lies that you ever can imagine. You, I would read a few pages of this venom against the Jews and, and want to go take a shower. It was palpably evil. And uh, this is what is promoted throughout many of these Arab countries. And it has its roots in a false religious system. So that Paul tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood. These are merely the physical manifestations. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go fight flesh and blood. But that's not the ultimate reality. We must understand there is a greater dimension. And our fight is against, he describes them as the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And these are categories of of demons. This is the demonic hierarchy and different categories of authorities within the demons. So Satan has has an army and it has structure and organization. What's some of the terminology that refers to them? In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words which refer to demons. The first is the Hebrew word shed. Looks like this, S-S-H-E-D, and you find this in Deuteronomy 32.17 and in Psalm 106, 36-37. And the other word is Sa'ir, S-A-I-R, which if you think about it, it is very similar to Satir. Our satyr, the uh, Greek satyr, which was a goat god that had the upper body of a human and the lower body of a goat. And see, if you, you just drop that T uh, into a guttural, it's very similar in terms of its sound. And so there seems to be an etymological link between the, ter- the, uh, the two terms. It's a he-goat, uh, he-goat demon, uh, often pictured in... Uh, Greek mythology. And this is referred to in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7. And then the third word that's used in, the, in this one in the New Testament is daimonion, D-A-I-M-O-N-I-O-N, which is the Greek word for, for demon. Now, the Arabic word that is Comparable to daimonion is the word jinn, D-J-I-N-N. And this was a term that referred to a spirit, an evil spirit or a demon. And it was a jinn that appeared to Muhammad, who was a camel driver, and uh, revealed to him the book of the Koran. Now, let's look at what the Bible says about these demons. I want you to turn with me. This is a verse you ought to underline to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. Deuteronomy 32, 17. Deuteronomy 32, 17, we read, they sacrificed to demons. This is a reference to uh, this is a reference to idolatry and the sacrifice to idols. It goes back, let's pick it up in verse 15, but you sure and grew fat and kicked. You're, you are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. So this is a picture of Israel rejecting God. And this is a prophecy. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. So this is relating the sacrifice to idols to demons. This is, uh, this is confirmed later in the New Testament in uh, 1 Corinthians that those who sacrifice to demons are also sacrificing to um, those who sacrifice to idols are sacrificing to demons. First uh, Corinthians chapter ten, uh, verse twenty. So, idolatry, false religion, is related to demonism. Now, 
this tells us that of, of one of Satan's five assaults on the human race. So let's look at this. Just summarize this. Five basic assaults that Satan has on the human race. We've studied the first one already. And the first one is the genetic assault. The genetic assault in Genesis chapter 6 when the fallen angel, some of the demons, uh, procreated with the daughters of men to produce a hybrid race to destroy the genetic purity of mankind. That's covered in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 6. It's also covered in First uh, Peter. Um, excuse me. It's covered in First uh, Peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 22, uh, Jude 6, and Second Peter 2. Four and five. We studied that several weeks ago. Now, the attacks of demon influence are done one of the ways. This is the second assault on mankind is demon influence. Now, in demon influence, this is the assault on the thinking of mankind so that the thoughts of mankind are influenced by demons. This is different from demon possession. Demon possession is the third assault. Demon possession is the control of the body. And that occurs for only unbelievers. But both believers and unbelievers can be uh, the objects of demon influence. The fourth demon assault on mankind is the assault of demon armies during the tribulation. I'm just going to give you all five assaults to begin with, and we're going to go back and look at, at uh, each one individually. The fourth is the demon assault during the tribulation. This is covered in Revelation chapter 9 and also in Revelation chapter 12. And then the fifth demon assault is the satanic-led revolt at the end of the millennium called the Gog and Magog Revolution in Revelation chapter uh, 20, verse 10. So those are the five assaults. And we're focusing on the second one, which is demon, um, demon influence. And demon influence must be distinguished from demon possession. One of the primary ways in which demons influence mankind is through religion. Some of these religious influences are... 180 degrees opposed to Christianity. Others are just very simple modifications that end up looking a lot like Christianity, but just being distortions of Christianity. One of the ways in the Old Testament was through, was through idolatry. So those who sacrifice to demons and those who worship idols were worshiping demons. Another passage on this is Psalm 106, verse 36. Psalm 106, 36, and there we read, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their daughters, their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So there there is a relationship of the idols of Canaan are called demons. Now one of the interesting things is that in Arabic, the name for an idol is Elah. And the name of one of these gods that they had is it's it's um, it's a cognate of Hebrew for it's Al, which is a cognate of the generic Hebrew word for God, lowercase L. And they and when Muhammad came along and was given the book of the Quran by a jinn or a demon. What Muhammad did was he took this this moon god that had been worshipped by the Arabs because the Arabs at that time worshipped about 260 different gods. 
And so what they did was, a, what uh, uh, Muhammad did was he came along and took this one God, combined the name together to be Allah. Allah is greater, which is their call to worship. He's greater than all other gods. That includes the uh, Hebrew God, but it also includes the other 259 idols and gods that they worship, which they immediately invalidated and came back and to worship Allah. So they come up with a non-biblical monotheism. Now, the trouble is that most of us have been taught that there are three monotheistic religions, and they are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and that they all are based out of the Old Testament, and that the Arabs all go back to Abraham, and Allah is just their version of the Old Testament God. But that's false. The Jews and the Christians worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Allah does not derive from Yahweh of the Old Testament. Allah derives from the moon god, who was also a warrior god. Remember, the crescent that you have in Islam is the crescent moon. And Allah derives from the moon god, who was a warrior god of the, um, of the Arabs, and has no relationship whatsoever to the God of the Old Testament, but is antagonistic to the God of the Old Testament. So what you have here is a representation, once again, even in these wonderful modern times, that warfare ultimately comes down to Allah versus the Christian God. And this is why at the very core of Islamic theology, there is an antagonism to Christianity and Judaism. And, and to Christians and Jews, and as far as uh, the Arabs are concerned, there is no distinction between believers and unbelievers. America is considered a Christian nation in a very generic use of the word Christian. So there is a this theological doctrinal element that underlies this all of this conflict is very real. Now, Americans over the last uh, 100, 150 years, because of the influence of secularism and secular philosophy, have managed to, uh, managed to separate religion from reality. That's true for even most Christians. Most Bible Christians are still have managed to compartmentalize Christianity so that it, doesn't, it affects their Sunday, but it doesn't affect the other days of the week. It doesn't affect their politics. It doesn't affect their philosophy of life. It doesn't affect their educational philosophy. It doesn't affect their family life. It only affects what they do on Sunday. That's true for most, most Christians. And we've compartmentalized. And so we now, because we have been anesthetized to the reality of the impact of religion on reality, we can no longer think, we can't think about life like that. So it's very hard for us to put ourselves as a culture in the shoes of the Arab world, where religion is reality, where religion does dictate policy and purpose and, and, and politics and everything. And so we can't understand that. And we think of, uh, you know, in America, we've even gotten the idea from, from a lot of secularists that if you let religion impact uh, uh, your, your policy making or your politics, and you must be some kind of a fanatic. And that was exemplified in the uh, interrogation from the uh, Senate Judicial Community, uh, Committee when they were interrogating um, John uh, Ashcroft for Attorney General. I think uh, Ted Kennedy asked him the question, are you going to be able to uh, disassociate your religious beliefs from your uh, policies? You know, that just shows how far we've come and as a nation that, that we think that religion is just something that has to do with a compartmentalized section of our lives and not reality. So it's very difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes and to look at this, uh, that, that the Arabs are looking at life from a radically different worldview. And until we come to grips with that as a nation, in terms of our policy making related to these to the various Islamic nations. Now, granted, there are moderate nations and extreme nations, and I'm not trying to make generalizations that all Arabs are, are fanatics. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there are fundamental theological realities in Islam 
that we dare not ignore because ultimately that this represents an even greater conflict. And I think that as Christians, when we look at the eschatology of the tribulation, that is going to be a major factor between the king of the south and, uh, and the assaults on Israel and the anti-Semitism at those times. I think Islam is going to play a major role in that. Now, if indeed we are close to the tribulation and the rapture is not far off, then these events today certainly take on a greater significance. But if we are not, if it is still further away, then, then these events are not quite as significant. But they do show, a, uh, I think, that we need to be aware that the pieces are certainly being moved around the uh, cosmic chess table quite, quite uh, rapidly right now. Whenever this is happening... We need to realize, and we're going to see this, in our, and we've seen it in our study of Daniel, we need to recognize that significant things are happening in terms of God's plan and program for history. So as believers, it gives us a tremendous sense of, uh, of relaxation to know that God's in control and these things uh, may be a surprise to us. They may upset our own personal plans, and, and, and yet we have confidence that God is in control. One of the ways that Satan is, the point this morning is Satan assaults through demon influence, and one of those primary ways is through demon, I mean, is through uh, idolatry and false religions. Now, this is different from demon possession. Turn with me to Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 5, and we're going to look at one episode of demon possession in the New Testament in order to demonstrate the difference. Mark chapter 5. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, this is the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerasenes. This is talking about the region as opposed to the specific area. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit Met him. Now, this is one way of describing somebody with demon who is demon possessed. There are three key words that are used in demon possession. One is the idea of of association, a dative of association, of an unclean spirit. This is akatharos, which is the word for unclean, plus uh, pneuma for spirit. So pneuma here is used to refer to a demon. Another word that's used is diamonizomai. Diamonizomai is a present, passive, participle. It's not a finite verb. D-A-I-M-O-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. As a present tense, it indicates a continuous action at least at the present time. It may be sporadic with the individual, but it indicates a continuous action. Passive means that the, that the subject is being acted upon. Now, the problem with this word is that many people who are writing these books on spiritual warfare today make a fundamental error in the way they handle the Greek here. It's called an etymological fallacy. An etymology is a study of the root meanings of a, of a word. And they would say that on the basis of etymology, diamonizomai simply means to be acted upon by a demon. And it doesn't tell us anything about how it is acted upon by a demon. So their view is that, that this can refer to any kind of action upon somebody. But the problem with that is that other words in the context are going to tell us what that action is. They're going to define it. And one of these other words that's used is the Greek word echo, echon, daimonion. And from the word, from the basic verb to have or to possess, echo, plus the Greek word for demon, daimonion. To have a demon, to possess a demon. So daimonia, daimonizomai is used in, a, in synonymous constructions 
with the phrase to have a demon. Now, let's see how that works itself out, as well as the, the dative of association with, with he has, it's an association. He has something with him. He has an unclean spirit with him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. So apparently he has some sort of incredible strength and power given him from this, from this demon. This is described in verse 4. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So this guy's got incredible strength. And constantly, night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. Now, this isn't some sort of psychological self-mutilation. There is something going on here with, a, with another personage, another spirit being called an evil spirit. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and crying out with a loud voice. This is not the individual. This is the demon crying out. What do I have to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, he being Jesus, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so Jesus' command is to come out. And this is an incredibly important verb to understand. It is the Greek verb ex erkamai. E-X-E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. Let me write that up at the top so you can see it better. Ex-Erkamai. E-X-E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. Now, the root word here, the root verb is Erkamai, which means to, to come or to go. The X here is the prefix from the preposition ek, meaning uh, out or out from. Now, there's three key words that are used in this, in this uh, context. There's erkamai. There is ex erkamai, which means to come out of. Or, and then there is the phrase ace. Erkamai. Once again, you have the root erkamai, to come or go. But ace, E-I-S, the prefix, means in or into. So ace erkamai means to come into or to go into. Ex erkamai to mean come out of or out from. And then you have one other important word here, ekbalo. And ekbalo means to cast out. That's E-K-B-A-L-L-O. And it means to cast out. Notice, out and in. Out and in. These are the key words. Diamondismai may be a general word, but these other words associated with it mean into and out of something. That's why you can come along and say diamondismai doesn't mean just simply to be acted upon by a demon, but the words associated with it indicate to be acted upon in a specific way. So that Jesus is telling the demon to come out of, and then he says, then the demons entreat Jesus, look in verse 12, and the demons entreated him saying, send us into, that's ace erkamai, send us into the swine so that we may enter into them. That's what demon possession is. It is entering into the body of something in order to control it. Now, if you, I want to take your attention back to verse 2, where we are told that, that, that this man has an unclean spirit. Well, if we look at a parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, verse 26, which describes the same incident, Luke 8.26, we'll see something interesting in terms of the way synonyms are used in the Scriptures and how that helps us to understand meaning. Luke 8.26, we're told, And they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he, Jesus, had come out into the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons. And that's the Greek word, diamonizomai. He's possessed with demons. 
and who had not put on any clothing for a long time was not living in a house. So that shows us that Diamonizomai in Luke 8.27 is a direct synonym of having or being with an unclean spirit over in Mark 5, 9, and 10. And here we have the same kind of thing going on. Um, Verse 29, it's called an unclean spirit here. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit. So demon is associated with an unclean spirit to come. He had been commanding the unclean spirit to what? Come out of the man. And then uh, Jesus has a has a conversation with him and addresses the demon in terms of his name. That does not mean that Jesus needed to know the name of the demon in order to exercise authority over him. That's come out in terms of so-called exorcist methodology, that you have to know the name of the demon. And you have a lot of people involved in what's called deliverance ministries today that are not authorized biblically going about doing what they call as exorcisms. Now, the scripture uses a technical verbiage here. The Greek word, whenever Jesus or the, or the uh, disciples cast out a demon, they use the Greek word ekbalo, which I had up on the board a minute ago. Ekbalo, which means to cast out. Now, this is a different word from the Greek word ex or kizo. E-X-O-R-K-I-Z-O. Ex or kizo. That is the word that is from which we get our English word exorcist. And the only time that is used in the Bible is in, I believe, Acts 17, when you have some Jewish exorcists casting out demons. Ekbalo is not used of what they do. Exorchizo refers to the mystical or magical practice of coming up with some kind of formula procedure uh, usually involving all kinds of incantations and candles and who knows what in order to get a demon to leave someone they have possessed. Jesus and the disciples never exercised a demon, not once. Get rid of that vocabulary. Exorcism is mysticism, magic, and it has nothing to do with the biblical practice of casting out a demon. And whenever they ekbalowed a demon, they, uh, Jesus did it instantaneously. And so... The, the um, demon, we're told, in Luke chapter 8, is, um, uh, responds to this inquiry, says his name is Legion, and then Luke gives us the explanation in verse 30, for many demons had exor- I mean, uh, ex-ercomai. They had entered into him. And um, so then Jesus is going to cast them out. And over and again, throughout all of the demon possession passages, you have this terminology. So you can't, set, you can't commit an etymological fallacy and say that there's no such thing as demon possession in the Scriptures. And yet, 90% of the books that are written today on spiritual warfare and demons want to operate on this exegetical fallacy that there's no such thing. Demon possession is just a concept that theologians made up You don't have that word in the Scriptures. And then they'll go in this long song and dance about how possession doesn't mean ownership. And and, um, and they'll get all wrapped around the axle about non-essential issues and completely ignore the the, uh, grammatical evidence. And the reason I know that they completely ignore the grammatical evidence is that uh, I've been doing some more study on this whole subject recently. And about four books on spiritual warfare have come out since my book on spiritual warfare originally came out back in the early 90s when Tommy and I made this grammatical case. And in all of the recent books, they all list our book in the bibliography. My, my, my. They all completely ignore this argument. Nobody even addresses it. They can't answer it. It's a devastating argument to their entire position. And it undergirds so many of the practices in the Pentecostal deliverance ministry and it is so damaging to people who think that the reason they have problems in life is because there's some demon, some evil spirit that's plaguing them. The reason we have problems in life is not due to demons. They may be involved. Obviously, I'm not denying that, but the issue in life is volition, not demons. Satan in in human history is attacking human volition. And volition is the issue. We have problems because we have a sin nature 
because we make bad decisions from a sin nature, not because there's some demon influencing us. Obviously, there are demons influencing everybody. We all are victims of, not victims, but we all have cosmic thinking. That's demon influence. There's not one of us who doesn't have cosmic thinking in the soul. That's demon influence. But the solution, the solution is always the same. And that is learn doctrine, renovate your thinking, and operate on the basis of Bible doctrine and not on the basis of cosmic thinking, which is where John's going to take us in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the cosmic system. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have your word. We have your absolute truth to guide us. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it illuminates the issues in life and the issues in history so that we can understand what the real issues are. Father, we thank you for, once again, for living in this country. And again, we pray for our national leadership, for many of the difficult decisions that are having to be made right now, and for the courage and the fortitude to stick with it. We pray for a nation that would be united behind these issues, and that those who are operating in arrogance and those that do not understand that violence must be met with equal and harsher violence in order to to protect ourselves and to maintain our freedoms, that these would have little or no influence because, indeed, they are traitors to the whole history of our nation and our freedoms. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning who may not have eternal life, that they have this opportunity right now to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of church attendance, involvement. It's not a matter of human works at all. It's just a matter of trusting Jesus Christ who paid it all. Jesus paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, and therefore the issue is no longer our sin or failures. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied today. We pray that we'd be challenged by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.